If you would then with me, turn to Luke chapter 11. And if you would, just bow with me in prayer for a moment, please. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your mercy. And we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you've given us your word. And this morning we ask you in Jesus' name to open your word to our hearts and that you'd speak to us and teach us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he had ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence or importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's not intended to be a Father's Day message. It's just the Father is always in the Scripture. He's everywhere. And we see here the disciples observing Jesus praying. And they ask him a question. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. Just like we see John's disciples, he taught them how to pray, and we see what they're doing. Teach, teach us to pray. We're, we're a, we're, we're, they must have observed something in his life because when we think about Jesus and his prayer life, I, I, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to almost just skim over some of that. When it says he was praying or he went to pray or he was alone praying or he, all these things and you just go, yeah, well, yeah, that's what he did. And we, we know that when he went down to the Jordan to be baptized, it says while he prayed, the heaven was opened. We know that when he withdrew into the wilderness to be tempted, he was praying. Just as just in Luke's gospel that chapter 6, it says that he went into a mountain to pray all night long in prayer to God. And the next day is when he chose his 12. Was there a reason he needed to pray all night? Was there something of an urgency or a specific nature in which he needed to know the will of God? It's Jesus, right? He prayed all night. Luke 9 Verse 18, it says, It happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So he's been praying, and now he's asking them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And what does Peter say? He had a revelation, didn't he? You think it had anything to do with Jesus praying? Maybe. Chapter 9, verse 29, he says, As he prayed, he's heading up to the mountain with James, Peter, and John. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. The Mount of Transfiguration. 
Luke 22, 32. He says to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus was a praying man. Can we, we all know that, right? We all acknowledge that Jesus Christ on this earth found it extremely important and of an urgency to spend time in prayer. And he admonishes up us. And, I, you know, it was weeks back, Daryl mentioned it. He says, Jesus said that my house is a house of prayer. A house of prayer. He tells us to watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things which will come to pass. And then in the garden, he had prayed for a while in agony. And he told his disciples, you stay here and pray. What does he find them doing? Sleeping. And what does he say to them? He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, prayer is one of those things that we could define it in all kinds of ways, right? We could, we could, we, we could say we pray, we, we give thanksgiving. It could be a prayer of thanksgiving. We could uh, intercede for somebody. There's all kinds of ways that we can think of in the Scripture that we, we should pray. We should pray unceasingly. We should pray uh, uh, in the Spirit. We know all these things about prayer. And yet, when we think about the nature of prayer and what we're actually doing, it's, it's us here, right? It's us here in this earthly realm from our hearts bringing our thanksgiving, our petitions, our supplications, our intercession, our needs before a God who is transcended, one who is outside of this realm, in a sense. And we call upon him because we need him. We absolutely need him. But yet, if we were to look at the example of Jesus and even the Apostle Paul, and we read of all the exhortations to us to pray, all the scriptural teaching on the importance of prayer, yet statistics will tell us that private personal prayer is one of the most neglected spiritual disciplines in a Christian's life. And the only answer I have to that, and this isn't a sermon about you need to pray more, because that doesn't get us anywhere. You need to do more. You need to do, you need to... What I'm hoping is that God would impress upon my heart and maybe yours the urgency and the necessity of prayer. Because what happens in our society is we tend to get self-sufficient. We tend to become self-reliant. And yet Jesus gives us a prayer here that includes so many things that he must have thought was important or he wouldn't have said it, right? He wouldn't have taught it as some, some prayer that we just recite because I've, I've been places and I take nothing away from a church that wants to recite this prayer. That's, that's fine. But it's never meant to be just let's repeat these words as if your heart does ne never has to be engaged in it. There never, there never has to be any urgency when we pray these things. Because we all know that we could, we could recite this prayer. We could recite it right off the top of our head. And our heart would never reach heaven with the words. Because God's looking for the way and the manner in which we also pray. You know, Martin Luther was quoted that the busier he got and the more things he needed to do and accomplish, the more he prayed. See, we think, well, I got, I got so much to do. Let, let me snap off. Let, let me check in with the Father real quick and just say a prayer real quick. Because I got stuff to do. And we tend to get busy, don't we? I know everybody in here is busy. Well, maybe not everybody, but I know we can all be overwhelmed with something else that's pressing. There's always something else that seems to be more urgent 
than our pray, praying time, our prayer time. And yet Jesus, in his life and in his teaching, made it, and Paul's teaching too, made it as if it was an absolute necessity in your life. It was a urgency to pray. And yet it's so neglected. I got, you know, I know we like statistics in this church, but the average person, this is just, this doesn't apply to us. I just like to read about other people. We like to do that. The average person lives 77 years. That equates to 28,000 days, 670,000 hours, or 40 million minutes. Now, I don't know how many minutes you have left. But you only have so many. Right? I mean, let's, let's face it. We only have so many minutes left in our lives. The average person spends 24 minutes a day getting dressed. Some do. That equates to 13 hours a month or seven days a year or one year in a lifetime. The average person spends 40 minutes a day on the phone. I seriously doubt these are accurate anymore. 40 minutes a day on the phone, that factors out to 20 hours a month, 10 days a year, two years of your life. The average person spends one hour a day in the bathroom. This amounts to 30 hours a month, 15 days a year, and three years in a lifetime. The average person spends three hours a day watching television. That's 90 hours a month, 45 days a year, and nine years in a lifetime. The average Christian spends less than 10 minutes a day in prayer. That equates to less than six hours a month, three days a year, and seven months in a lifetime. Let's hope we're not the average Christian. Because I think, when I think about my own life and how easy it is to always have something else to do, something else that's always more pressing than my time praying, I have to be ashamed of myself in a way. But that's not what I'm here. That's not how I motivate myself. What I do is I look at how did Jesus teach his disciples how to pray. So in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Now it came to pass that while he was praying in a certain place, when he had ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but what would I have asked Jesus to teach me? Would I have, maybe I would have taught, teach me how to turn water into wine. Teach me how to walk on water. Teach me how to feed thousands with a very little bit. That's not what they asked them, did they? They saw something of a necessity in their own lives, I think. They saw that his life of prayer and devotion to his father extended out into his life. It became how he did what he did. I believe that his amount of time spent in prayer was how he could go out into the world and cast out demons and raise the dead and speak with wisdom and understand things that no one else knew. He didn't just wing it, friends. He didn't just count on the fact that he was the son of God. He spent many, many, many hours praying. And again, I'm not here to make rules. I'm here to hopefully impress upon us the need. Because if you don't see the need of personal, private prayer or even corporate prayer, if you don't see the need of that, you will not do it. So the point is, is there a need? Do we have a need? Or have we learned to get by? Have we learned that we can make certain things happen? We've learned to go to work and make a living. And I'm not here to say none of you pray. That's not at all what I'm saying. But the tendency is is that the more successful we get, the more things we have, the less we may find ourselves praying, Lord, our Father, give us day by day 
our daily bread. So they ask him, they ask the Lord to teach them to pray. I can only assume then that they saw something different in the prayers that Jesus prayed or that John the Baptist prayed. Because up to that point, what were they looking at? What did they see? They saw the Pharisees who made long prayers on the corners so they could be seen of men. Yet they, yet when the Pharisees and the scribes taught, they never sensed any weight to their words, right? So they're looking at the religious society of their day, the religious circles, and going, you know, you teach us how to pray because whatever you're doing, however you're addressing the Heavenly Father, that's what we need to learn. And what is the first thing he says about prayer? He teaches them what not to do, right? He says, don't, don't be like those hypocrites that you're seeing. They're the ones that are, are, are doing this that they may be seen by men. And we've been around these people. I'm sh- has that anybody been around somebody that you just know? They're praying to be heard and seen by men. I mean, we've all been there, right? And you're thinking, come on already, brother, just... I'm not impressed. You might impress somebody, but you're not impressing me, nor are you impressing God. He also says that they should not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their much speaking. Now, see, this comes back to what's, we're not going to tell somebody, you need to spend an hour a day in prayer. I can't say that to you. Because you could find yourself just spending an hour in prayer, but not from your heart. And you would think, as some maybe think, that the more I pray and the more words come out of my mouth, God might hear me. That's not the kind of prayers he hears, is it? Not at all. So Jesus says in verse 2, he says, so he says to them, when you pray, say, or In Matthew's account, it says, In this manner, pray, our Father. So right off the bat, we've got a whole change of how we address God from the Old Testament to now the New. The New Covenant brings us into that relationship where we no longer just address God as God Almighty or Lord. Jesus is teaching his disciples, when you address God... In prayer, it's our Father, our Father. He's always been, always will be the sovereign creator all over all his creation. He is still the King of kings, Lord of lords. But now by our adoption as his sons, we have the privilege of coming to him as his children, and he is our Father. Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born uh, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So our Father is how we start our prayers. Our Father. It's a relational. It's how we relate to God. Then he says who? Our Father where? In heaven. Right? So it's a positional thing. Now our eyes have to be cast way above our earthly realm to a Father that resides above here. So we're now addressing our Father who is higher than us, who is transcendent, that is outside this realm, and he's unaffected by his creation. He knows all things, sees all things. He knows your tomorrow. He knows your next minute. He knows all these things. So when we address him as our Father, we also address him as the one who is exalted above all the circumstances that we face. He goes on in verse 2, and I'm only brief in these because I want to get to something else. But verse 2, hallowed be your name. 
these first three petitions out of six are all about God. So many Christians probably launch into God I need. How many of us spend half of our prayer time addressing God as who he is? We need to make sure that our minds are in the right perspective and the right focus when we come before God in prayer. It's okay to pray for one another, isn't it? And to pray for ourselves, as we'll see. But we need to really start with that, with that mindset that I'm praying to my heavenly Father who is in heaven. And I can count on to provide for me the things that I need. So, he goes on in verse 2 and says, Hallowed be your name. In other words, his name and everything about him is to be revered. We don't ever go to God as, hey, yo, bud. Hey, hey, yo, God, I need some stuff. He might be our heavenly father, but he is still to be respected, feared, and honored as God. Always and forevermore. You know, the Ten Commandments is what? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. So when we think about praying, I mean, he, this is part of the prayer, right? Hallowed be your name, or sanctified, or separate, be your name. We want God's name and who he is to be feared and revered by everyone. His name, who he is, is who we want all people to look to. We just heard testimony about, you know, what was it uh, Scott was saying about how the people saw what God did for them. Now, as long as they had honor and respect for God, they had a fear that God was with them. So what do we do? Do we, as we take on the name of the Lord, do we honor and revere his name? Is he set apart in our hearts? Do we, by our lives, by our words, by our choices bring disgrace upon his name or are, is his name set apart and holy? Because for his name to be hallowed means it's separate from everything profane. It's separate from everything sinful. It's separate from everything that's unrighteous. And yet we bear his name. And we're told that to all who name the name of Christ, we are to, to depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.19. Aren't we told in Colossians 3 that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. His name is who he is. And when we take it to places we take it, are we hollowing it? Are we considering it an awesome, reverential name? You know, it's recorded of Alexander the Great. To the one who bore his name, he gave this admonition. Remember, thy name is Alexander. Implying that such a remembrance would keep him from doing anything that would stain and tarnish and so render him unworthy to hold it. I don't know about you, but, you know, we all know your name is who you are. You don't like your name being tarnished, do you? You don't like your name being dragged through the mud, do you? Well, our prayer ought to be that God's name is separate from all unholy things. And he goes on and says, your kingdom come. The kingdom, the reign or the dominion of a king. We're supposed to pray that his kingdom come. We are supposed to pray that this world would be replaced by his kingdom coming. His reign, his rule, his authority over all unrighteousness, all iniquity, all sin, all corruption. 
but we also know that by us calling upon his kingdom to come, do we see that as a threat to our kingdom? Because, see, if God's kingdom is going to come into a realm, right? I mean, when Jesus and, the, and uh, John the Baptist, they came preaching, what did they say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the big deal? Let it come. Well, when God's kingdom comes, it has to judge everything that can't fit in it or won't. It's just not, it has to be dealt with. So when you pray for his kingdom to come, do you shy back because, wow, if his kingdom comes into my life, there might be a thing or two that he's going to judge. I don't know if I like that or not. I kind of like having God at about 85% of my life. Right? We just want God at about 85%. I want I like this 15% of my kingdom. Well, we, want, we should be praying that God's kingdom come on this earth to establish his rule, his righteousness, his law, his holiness. All these things we should be desiring and praying for. Otherwise, Jesus just told his disciples just to say that doesn't make sense. Jesus taught what he expected us to pray. Then he says in verse 2, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will being done. If we're asking for God, if we're petitioning God and praying to God, Your will be done. Does that imply that it's not always being done? I mean, we know he's sovereign over all his universe, and he's working all things together according to his purposes. But can you say that everything in the world is according to his will? How about in your own life? How about in our church? Are we praying that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Because how is his will being done in heaven? Slipshodly and, and 85%? I mean, think about it. God's will is being done, what, 100%? Immediately, completely, and without exception in heaven, right? Everything that God wills in heaven is done. Willingly. By all of the subjects that he's created. So we should pray that God's will be done in earth, in our church, in our lives, as it is in heaven. And then we get to pray for ourselves, right? He goes on and he says, listen, you ask your heavenly Father, give us day by day our daily bread. A humble petition for the most basic of needs. Do we even think in those terms anymore? Because if you've got a freezer full of a cow you just slaughtered and butchered, and you've got umpteen cabinets full of I don't know what, and just cupboards filled with food, ask God for my daily provisions? Well, I don't need to pray that. Kroger is right there. Walmart is over there. Speedway is real handy. But that's the point. We get to thinking that these things are always going to be there. They're, they become who we trust in for our basic daily provision. And we don't take the time to humbly come before God acknowledging that He is the provider of even our daily bread. Lord, day by day, give us our daily bread. How about your spiritual daily bread? How about what you need day to day on a spiritual level? They gave, he gave manna on a regular basis in the wilderness, didn't he? How often was that? Every day. Just enough, day by day. 
And then we're told to ask to forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So I ask the question, is God obligated to forgive your sin? Is he always obligated to forgive you of your sin? It says, whenever you, Matthew eleven twenty five. whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your, heaven, your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Can we say then that the principle Jesus expects us to pray and think about and consider is that we cannot ask God to treat us any differently than we treat others. Whether it be forgiveness, how about judgment without mercy is shown to the one who shows no mercy. James chapter 2. How about when it comes to the poor? Can we ignore the poor that are always with us and have real needs can we ignore the poor when they have a need and then expect that when we have a need, hey, Lord, I need. Is there a chance that some of us don't do as well as we could because we're so busy about ourselves and forgetting about others that we've shortcutted the whole thing? We think we can just have faith. Well, you have to have faith that also gives to the poor. You have to have faith that can forgive one another. You have to have mercy. You have to be generous. Proverbs nineteen seventeen: He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay him back, will pay back what he has given. Proverbs 21, 13, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. See, the principle here is, is that as we treat others is how God will treat us. Is that fair? Let's think about it. You know, if we don't forgive somebody, God doesn't forgive us. If we don't give ear to the cry of the poor, neither will he hear us when we have need. Well, that's kind of rough. I thought God was just love. Well, no, he expects us as his children, as his people, to express how he is. He is merciful. He is giving. 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. See, I look at some of these things, and I don't, I don't want to put. See, I don't like rules. Rules tend to lead to legalism and, and, and ways of you think if I, if I just get on the right rules, then God's obligated. But it's really more of a matter of are you expressing the heart of the Father as we should as his children? It says to me, all of these verses about not showing mercy, not showing honor to your wife, not giving to the poor, um, not sowing generously, all these things say to me that it doesn't matter how much faith you think you have. None of your faith can overcome these obligations that we have. Now, I'm challenged every day with these. I look at these and I go... I, you know, I'm convicted just like everybody else. I look at these and go, am I a merciless person? And yet I still expect God's mercy. Am I a stingy person, but I expect to be prospered? See, we need to remember that when we come to God and ask for our daily bread, we are dependent on him for our basic needs. Then he asks, then he, sa- then he tells them in verse 4, he says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
We address God as our Father, but we also know He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once, seeing all things visible and invisible. Now, I know in here, how many in here won the last fist fight or wrestling match you had with demonic powers in your own strength? You didn't, did you? But he's telling them, you need to pray that your heavenly Father, not that he's going to lead you into temptation, but that he's going to keep you safe. Because if we don't see this as an urgent need, that we need God to direct our steps every day, how easy is it to just wander off and succumb to temptation or sin? Is he asking, is he telling his disciples here, you need to pray that God would keep you from the evil one. Don't go out in the world and think, I got this. I can handle it. I did it in the past. No, you didn't. Again, are we showing ourselves as the humble servants of God, his children, who then just bow the knee to him and ask, Lord God, keep me from temptation and the evil one. Because apart from you, I don't know where I'll go. Is that fair to say? He even prayed in the, in the high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. It's very important that we never think as we look at a prayer like this and what Jesus taught us to pray, that we never think that any one of these things is unnecessary in our lives. That we ever take it for granted that, well, God's my Father and He'll just take care of everything. That's not what Jesus taught, is it? Jesus taught that when you pray, this is the, these are the things, this is the manner, this is the outline. These aren't just the words, but this is how we need to address God. This is who we address, and this is what we address Him for. And we do this in complete humility because we are still just the created, aren't we? Then he goes on and says in verse 5, and he says to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Jesus just got done explaining what they need to be praying for. Now, I believe he's telling them, this is how you bring your petitions to God. Because if all we do is run through some words or a prayer list, and there never really is that sense of need or urgency in what we're praying, is that what he's teaching? That's not what he's teaching because he gives us an illustration here, and he, he said the same, same sort of thing. Remember in Luke 18 where he talks about the widow and the unjust judge? He starts out that parable and he says that men ought to always pray and not lose heart. See, our prayers need to be persistent, they need to be bold, they need to be demanding. Because if Jesus gives us an illustration here of a friend, and don't think you can come to my door at midnight and knock, because I'm not setting myself up for that. But he's telling them, listen, so listen, I, I just got done telling you what you can pray for. Then he goes on and tells them, listen, what if you have a friend, right? And you go to that man at midnight, real convenient hour. And you go because you had somebody come in at a late hour 
And back then, hospitality was not an option. It was a duty. There were no speedways, there were no 7-Elevens, and there were no Wawa's. If you don't know what a Wawa is, you've got to go to the East Coast. It's a, fa- it's a convenience store. To them, there was no means by which to just go get things. So you go to your neighbor's house at midnight because I have a need. Jesus is teaching them, I, you have a need for bread. You go to your neighbor's house at midnight. And from within the door, what do you hear? Leave me alone. I'm, I'm in bed. Just, I, 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 can, I can hear your need. I understand your predicament. But you know what? I'm already in bed. The door's already shut. Find somebody else. But what does the friend do? The friend persists. The friend comes to the neighbor with a need. And in his persistence and importunity, he's not begging and pleading over and over again for the same thing, but he is there with a demand on that friend for what he needs. There's an urgency about what his prayer is, his desire. He understands that he has a need, and he is going to press it until he gets what he wants or what he needs. So even though we have the Lord's Prayer, and it's very nice and well-written, Jesus wants us to approach him with these things as if they are desperate needs in our lives, not just words we repeat. There's always an urgency and a need in our life. Is there anybody in here that has no needs? You're done. You're perfected. It's over. We have no needs in this church. There's nobody enduring or going through things. Of course, there's always needs. But it says that the friend does not rise and give to him because he's his friend but because of his importunity or his persistence. Or that word could be defined as shamelessness. Is Jesus saying then that when we come to our Heavenly Father, we should come with a mindset that I have a need and I'm going to press upon God with all I have and I'm going to persist in faith until I see it. Because I have a need and he is my supply. You know, we can't just go through life saying prayers. There has to be some sort of an urgency in us that presses upon God, our Father. I don't beg God for anything. I certainly don't ask for the same thing over and over as if he didn't hear me. But if I have a need... And he is the all-sufficient one. Is there anything wrong with me taking his word and his promise? And I'm going to press on him because I need these things. And I'm going to persist. And I'm going to stay with it. I'm not going to, as he taught in Luke 18, faint. I'm going to keep persisting. Is that, he's teaching us that This is the kind of prayer God is looking for out of his people. He's not looking for the multitude of words that come out of our mouths. He's not looking for us to put together eloquent prayers on the corners that impress people. He's looking for people who understand their need of daily bread, who understand their need of forgiveness, who understand their need of protection and deliverance from the evil one, and they're willing to press him knowing the urgency of their need, and they will stay with it, and they will press him for that. The persistence. What nerve would it take to impose upon your neighbor at midnight asking for bread, seeking your need, and banging on his door Because you know that he has what you need. That 
is importunity. That's a shameless boldness that I believe God is looking for when we pray to him because we're acknowledging him as the all-sufficient one and we are the needy. We all know the story. I'm not gonna, we're not going to look at all these. We're going to look at one, but Matthew chapter 9. We all know the story of the woman with the issue of blood, don't we? Matthew 9.20, if you're turning there. Jesus taught us what to pray for, but he also taught us that we should pray with a knowing of our needs and an urgency and a desperation almost for what he has that we don't. Matthew 9.20, and suddenly... That's New King James. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if I may only touch his garment, I will be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Here it is, illustrated for us in one woman. Did she have a desperate need? Absolutely. She was desperate to be made well. So what did her faith do? Her faith knew that Jesus was the supply of that need. He was the one who was going to bring me what I need. And her faith is what compelled her to push her way through the crowd at any cost, at any shame, in total boldness. I am going to get what I need from him. I'm not going to be pushed aside by one or two of the crowd and go, I, I, you know, Lord, I'll just, I hope you come back again and maybe you'll brush against me. There was a desperateness about her, wasn't there? And he turns around and says, great is your faith because you persisted enough that you would be willing to shove yourself through a crowd in total shame to get what you need from me. And he just quit yelling, right? Matthew 15. If you want to turn there, Matthew 15. We know these stories. And then Jesus went out from there, 1521, I'm sorry. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Cried out to him, Have mercy on me. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Her faith pushed and pressed and was not going to take no for an answer. Was she? It's her faith that compelled her to continue to press Jesus for what she needed for her daughter. She didn't take the first response and go, oh, it's not God's will. I guess I'll just faint and make do with what I've got. See, there's something about when Jesus said to these people, great is your faith. Their faith was expressed how? Their desperate press upon God for what they need. 
They weren't begging and pleading for the same thing over and over again like the religious world. But their faith was going to press upon Jesus until they got what they needed. And then my favorite is Mark 10. Mark chapter 10. It says, now they came to Jericho. And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. You can imagine the crowds following Jesus, couldn't you? Just a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And you've got to like the next statement. And Jesus stood still. Here's a man on the side of the road with a desperate need, right? He's on the side of the road. Jesus, his disciples, and a great multitude, it says, are passing down the street. Blind Bartimaeus, here's who it is. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe, maybe he'll, I'll catch his eye. Maybe if I make my sign bigger that I'm blind and poor and I need. Maybe he'll respond simply to my need. Because look, I'm blind. This is a pretty rough life. Maybe Jesus in his compassion will just see me and do something. What does he do? He hears it's Jesus. And what does he know about Jesus? That Jesus has what he needs. And what does he begin to do? He begins whispering and passing notes to people. Here, get this to Jesus. Now, it's, it's, when it talks about crying out in the Bible, we're talking about screaming. We're talking about letting it loose. Why? Because blind Bartimaeus had a need. Jesus was the supplier, the one who was going to fulfill what he needed. And he wasn't going to let Jesus pass by without getting what he wanted. So he persists. He cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. People are telling him to be quiet. His faith persists. He presses upon Jesus. He presses and he presses and he cries out to him and he continues in his persistence, his boldness, and his shamelessness upon Jesus, the supplier of his need, until Jesus stood still. Are we, do we see our need in such a way? Some of us do. There's needs in this church that have come up that people have found themselves crying out to God. We look at that as the occasional, oh yeah, when something happens, then I'll really cry out to God. But I think Jesus was teaching us in Luke 7 when he taught his disciples to pray that every time we come to him, we need to see the desperate needs we have. That he is the supplier. And what he expects from us when we pray is a faith that's shameless and bold and has tenacity and says, you are my supplier, I'm coming to you because I have a need. Not a ho-hum prayer. Not, Lord, I, uh, I, I know you've got this and I'll just, uh, in Jesus' name and go about our business. There has to be something. These people that receive from Jesus, blind Bartimaeus who could stop Jesus in his tracks, stopped him because he was not going to let Jesus pass by before he got what he needed. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called... Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer. Rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he arose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. We know from that story that blind Bartimaeus would have never seen again if his faith would have not been shamelessly bold and persistent 
pressing upon the one who has the solution. So, back in Luke 11, Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, So I say to you, Right? He just got done telling the story of the friend who went to his neighbor and persisted in his faith until he got his need met. He said, so I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What a promise. This is a promise. This is a promise to you and I that if we ask our Heavenly Father with the urgency of need, like we should think about everything in our lives, and we don't just make it a simple little prayer, but we press upon Him because I am acknowledging my need of you for everything, for my daily needs, for my protection, for my forgiveness, for all these things. I need you. And when things get desperate, do we really and truly press upon God with our faith for the things we need? Because the people that were told, great is thy faith, are the ones who persisted. They never drew faint. They never drew back. They placed a demand on God, and I believe he was pleased with them. That's our Father. That's our Heavenly Father. That's God. You come and you ask. You seek. And you knock. And you'll receive, find, and it'll be open to you. So the character of our Heavenly Father, he who has all that we need, the all-sufficient one. It's the one from whom we are asking to meet our every need. We come to God, we pray, hopefully, we pray to God in an earnest, needful way because we understand that it's us who are needy and he is the supplier. Yeah, a few weeks back, Greg articulated something that I held up, but he said he was reminded that sometimes we think we have to bring to God something more than we have to. I'm paraphrasing Greg, but the idea is we start putting so much pressure on ourselves to be something or provide something to God other than a bold, persistent faith. We need to remember that our faith is made bold, is made great because of who he is. We acknowledge who he is, and that's where your faith comes from. You have no faith in him apart from knowing that he is the great supplier of all your needs. So can we come to him as his children he is our Father, and ask with the kind of faith that Jesus illustrates. Because he goes on in verse 11 and he says, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If there's any fathers in here and their child's ever asked them for bread and you gave him a stone, you need to talk to somebody. Because you wouldn't do that, right? You fathers in here, you know what we're saying. You, you know what he's meaning. That if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? I understand from my life and, and everyone in this room has had a different relationship with their earthly father. And it could very well be that you've had the greatest father that ever lived on the planet. I hope you did. I really do. Because how you relate to your earthly father 
is how you will see how this works. Because if your earthly father was unreliable, didn't keep his promises, wasn't really there when you needed him, don't you think a person like that's going to struggle a little bit more to understand this? But see, those are the kind of things that we all need to overcome, or not all of us. But see, we're told that if you then, being evil, verse 13, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to him who asks? Or Matthew's account says, give good things to them who ask. Our heavenly Father desires to give us good things. And yet he's told us what to pray and how to pray it. Because when we ask, when we seek, and when we knock, God is more than willing to give us those things. We need not face any situation in our life personally or in this church or in our community or in our businesses alone. Right? None of us in here should do that. Yet I think in some ways I do. I tend to think even down to the smallest level that I can do a lot more than I think I can do. I forget that God is the sufficient one. That it's not up to you or me to do anything other than trust him for his sufficiency. Is there a righteous man in the room? You don't need to raise your hand. You'll be boasting, right? But James 5 tells us that we are to confess our trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and it gives us the example of Elijah, a man of like passions. So if there's one righteous man in here, or woman, your effectual, fervent prayer can avail much. Is that a big deal to you? Your prayer for yourself, your family, your church, your business, your community, your prayer pressing upon God can affect much. Because a fervent, effective prayer is not just words mumbled on the way to work. It says that Elijah prayed praying. He was earnest, wasn't he? God saw that. So those here, those of us here who are fathers, we need to remember the importance of representing God, his character through our lives, those who make a promise and keep it, those who are there when your children need you, those who know how to discipline and when to discipline, those things that we want to instill into our children so that when they come to their heavenly father, they don't have to overcome some of the things we overcame. They understand that if our heavenly father is anything like my father, he's all for me. What he says is true. What he said he'll do, he'll do. And that's how we as our as fathers here should be looking to represent God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you are the God who supplies all of our needs. We thank you that as we ask from you and seek from you and knock, that you are the one who supplies. We thank you that you are a loving Heavenly Father. We thank you for your faithfulness. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this congregation and each one here. 
pray that you would impress upon us the needs that we do have in our lives, those things that you are willing and able and ready to provide. We thank you for those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. You're my rock. You're my fortress. You're